My name is Brandon Noakes. I'm faculty at University of California, San Diego in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine. I'm also the director of hypoglossal nerve stimulation at VA San Diego. Today's podcast is all things opioids and sleep disordered breathing. We have a broad array of panelists, including Clara Yagi, who's an associate professor at Yale University, where his research focuses on clinical outcomes related to sleep disordered breathing. We have Danny Eckert from Flinders University, uh, who's the Matthew Flinders professor, and his research focuses on OSA pathophysiology. We have Erica Levitt from University of Michigan and the Department of Pharmacology and Anesthesiology. Her research surrounds the neuroscience of opioid-induced respiratory depression. We have Tatyana Kanzerska, who's an associate professor at the University of Ottawa and the co-director of the, Os- the Ottawa Hospital Sleep Center. Her research surrounds the epidemiology of sleep disordered breathing. And lastly, we have Jeremy Orr, who's an assistant professor at UCSD. He directs our home ventilation program, and he's interested in optimizing therapeutics for opioid-induced respiratory depression. Thanks, everyone. So uh, just to to dive in, so a lot of this podcast was uh, sparked not only based on the HEAL initiative, but also based on Dr. Eckert and Dr. Yagi's uh, Blue Journal article back uh, this past fall. It was a scoping overview of all things opioid and and, uh, and sleep disordered breathing. Um, Dr. Eckert, Dr. Yagi, what was your inspiration for writing your recent Blue Journal article um, regarding opioid sleep and ventilatory control? Take us off, Claire. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, thanks, yeah. Danny. Yeah. Um, I think that's a great question. You know, I think um, uh, we know, you know, prior to the uh, the COVID pandemic, the opioid uh, uh, pandemic was the the, the epidemic. Uh, we know that um, every uh, literally every twenty minutes or so, someone in this country dies of an opioid uh, overdose. Um, I think what has has fascinated us, uh, and, and, and in part the inspiration for this article, is that most of these um, opioid-related uh, overdoses uh, occur during sleep, uh, um, uh, where there is the combination of respiratory drive suppression from the opioid itself, but also mechanisms related to uh, sleep uh, 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 respiratory drive suppression. Uh, from from mo- more of a clinical perspective, um, there are FDA-approved therapies that are effective at helping to mitigate some of the uh, the complications of opioid use disorder, but their impact is very variable. There's still, people on therapies such as methadone and buprenorphine and naltrexone uh, still have really high rates of recurrent illicit opioid use and opioid use disorder, uh, leading to infectious complications, overdoses, and I, I think you know, newer strategies to better understand some of the mechanisms involved and pathways involved was the was the impetus for for the the HEAL initiative that you mentioned, uh, uh, Brandon, which was sort of an all hands on deck approach uh, sponsored by the NIH Trans Institute to get a handle on some of these mechanisms. But I think for for Danny and I, it was, you know, the idea of targeting a a neurobiologic system such as sleep and circadian rhythmicity that has been linked to opioid use disorder, 
Sleep deficiency we know is very common among patients with opioid use disorder. Some of the, what's fascinated me is that some of the same brain regions that are involved in opioid use disorder, uh, such as things like executive function, reward processing are also impaired among patients with, with sleep deficiency. Um, and I think we know that sleep is increasingly being recognized as really important to, to brain health. Uh, and in a, a recent sort of public hearing, in fact, that the, um, the FDA sponsored that included patients with opioid use disorder, they often, they cited, you know, sleep deficiency as a major sort of clinical reason of, of why they continue to use um, uh, opioids. So th those were some of the inspirations uh, from my perspective. Danny, do you, you want to add? Yeah, look, and e echoing those comments, uh, very common uh, problem, this, the opioid epidemic, of course, 75% of uh, people with opioid use disorder have, have sleep deficiency, so incredibly common link with sleep there. And, uh, you know, physiologically, this is very interesting. There's, there's lots of uh, uh, knowledge gaps in terms of what um, morphine and, and opioids do to sleep and breathing. And so it's actually some some of them is you know it, some of them is it's not all bad you know and and it, it's dose dependent and and there's a lot of pre uh, misconceptions out there I think in terms of uh, what these drugs do and um, you know that harm benefit ratio and and I think it's really important to kind of figure that out in this context uh, given the knowledge gap uh, in the evidence that we have to gain so there's a real research opportunity there to look at this and of course you know, uh, that bi-directional relationship that we've kind of highlighted there in, in, in the paper where there's a real opportunity to intervene here. We know we need better solutions to uh, manage this major issue and uh, targeting sleep um, uh, is, is a real opportunity to, to help these folks to, uh, uh, you know, deal with this major issue. So that's, that's some of the motivation. And, and obviously the uh, editorial board at the uh, at the Blue Journal uh, thought this was uh, a priority and, and and hence they reached out to, to Clara and I to, to get this done. And that, that being said, what are some key take-home messages of your article? Yeah, I think um, maybe Danny can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the physiology that we went into uh, related to uh, some of the mechanisms by which opioid use uh, and opioid use disorder may contribute to sleep uh, deficiency. I, I think th thinking about that other uh, causal direction, there there are there are also pathways whereby sleep deficiency can contribute to uh, recurrent illicit opioid use. We know that in this sort of the trajectory of opioid use disorder from initial use to misuse to addiction to uh, relapse to overdose sleep deficiency sort of accompanies uh, that, that whole trajectory. There are certain sort of circadian uh, disorders, chronotypes uh, even, that predispose to uh, addiction tendency. We know patients with delayed sleep phase and, and, and even social jet lag maybe uh, have an increased risk for, uh, for addiction. Um, 
there are neurocognitive pathways uh, in, in brain regions uh, that that may be overlapping in the in the two. I think one uh, very exciting uh, uh, domain uh, uh, that we highlighted in 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 the paper was was the importance of the orexin uh, uh, system, which we all know in, uh, in in the pathogenesis of narcolepsy, uh, and have already FDA approved drug therapies, you know, based on that uh, uh, system. But the orexin system, in, a, in addition to impacting sleep, uh, and uh, um, also impacts reward. And so the idea that there are some therapies that target this neurobiologic system that may actually help with the sleep deficiency that we see uh, among these patients, but also simultaneously help to improve their addiction is very appealing. And there, there are a number of uh, randomized clinical trials going on right now looking at that. Uh, that is in fact uh, part of this large NIH uh, HEAL uh, initiative. So some exciting developments on that, that causal pathway. And, and I guess that, you know, to add to that in terms of the take-homes uh, in the physiology, you know, this, th there's a lot of complexity here in terms to, you know, how an individual is going to be affected by these drugs. Um, and, you know, that, that it varies uh, acutely uh, versus chronically in terms of the effects that it has on, on, on sleep and breathing. It's dose-dependent uh, and, and, and individual pathophysiology-dependent. So... Figuring that out is going to be really important for, you know, uh, figuring out the role that these drugs can play in, in safe and effective management of, of whatever issues they're trying to deal with, but also uh, in, in working out who is most at risk of harm and, and, and trying to identify that, you know, I think there's real opportunity with using some of the techniques that we talked about in the, in the paper. And, and I guess just I highlighted some of the sort of preconceptions we might have with this, you know, Morpheus, Greek god of dreams, son of Hypnos, you know, we think that these drugs might knock you out. And, and, um, and certainly, of course, at very high doses, that, that, that can be the, the case. But at lower doses, um, you know, we, we, in the studies that, that we and others have done, um, you know, lower doses do not seem to raise uh, things like the arousal threshold. And in fact, acute doses of morphine can be very disruptive to sleep. They can knock out REM, they can um, uh, lead to more frequent arousals. And, and uh, these things can all sort of uh, have different roles in, in, in terms of sleep and breathing. And I guess just to highlight how sort of important this is physiologically, you know, in, in one of the studies that, that we did with my colleagues at the Wilcox Institute with David Wang and, and uh, Ron Grunstein, we, we found that with a single 40 milligram dose of, of morphine, uh, you get a 40-fold difference in blood morphine concentration between individuals. So it's massively different, hugely different. So this is not a one-size-fits-all uh, issue that we're dealing with here. And we've really got to figure that neurobiology out if we're going to, uh, um, you know, help, help these folks and, uh, uh, and understand its role in, in breathing. And, and equally, you know, we just finished a study actually in people with COPD with low-dose morphine, 20 milligrams over 30 uh, over three days versus placebo, double blind. And again, you know, similar to our previous study in people with sleep apnea, it did not um, change the AHI. You know, so give it, given 40 milligrams, 20 milligrams did not systematically change the AHI at all. It didn't change the traits as such. Um, 
uh, other than the controller breeding parameters, things like loop gain. So the airway didn't become more collapsible, arousal threshold didn't change. We didn't see the muscles getting uh, changing in these, in these studies. But certainly in our COPD folks, we did see um, sleep hyperventilation, you know, CO2 retention, oxygen levels got worse. Uh, so, so these are, you know, these are areas of concern that we really need to figure out both on a, on a, on a group level, but also on an individual level. And I think uh, with some of the techniques we talked about in the article, there's, there's an opportunity to do that and certainly a very rich area for future research uh, uh, opportunities, I think, and, and ultimately novel interventions for, for treatment and care. Yeah, that, that, that's really cool and exciting. Uh, thank you both. And, and, and Danny, your, your answer kind of gets into question three here. So, I mean, your group has looked at the impact of opioids and OSA endotypes and upper airway behavior. Um, how do opioids influence sleep disorder breathing and what can you tell us about your work? Yeah, I, I guess I, I highlight a little bit there, but I think the biggest thing is, is the real knowledge gap. Um, you know, we, we did a single uh, study in, well, initially did a randomized trial in 60 people with, with obstructive sleep apnea and we gave them 40 milligrams of uh, MS Compton versus placebo. And as I mentioned, we didn't see any systematic change in, um, in their apnea hypopnea index. Uh, or, and we did see these variable changes uh, with actually some folks getting a little better in their HI and others getting worse. And that was actually related to some of their uh, genetic polymorphisms in terms of their opioid um, uh, physiology, if you like, um, and, and, and were somewhat related to blood concentration as well. So, you know, in the, in the limited studies we've done, and I just mentioned a study we finished in, in folks with COPD, really what it, these drugs do is they um, change your uh, respiratory control. Now, interestingly, they, change, they seem to change it in different ways in people with sleep apnea. So it makes you less sensitive to CO2, uh, and as such, in people with high loop gain to begin with, that can actually, as long as you're not changing the other traits, which we didn't see any evidence for, that is making the airway more collapsible, changing the arousal threshold, uh, or, or uh, uh, yeah, the, the, other, the other key traits, uh, or impairing the muscle function, yeah, just lowering the loop gain a little bit can actually help stabilize breathing in some of these folks at that lower dose. Now, we don't have any data in higher doses and we would expect it to have a very different effect in those higher doses where you might get profound suppression of breathing, CO2 retention. And, and as I mentioned, we saw signs of that even at very low doses, which are prescribed here in Australia for relief of chronic refractory breathlessness. Um, and it's in the guidelines here uh, uh, for relieving uh, uh, that and uh, and we did see um, quite worryingly that yeah those effects on, on during sleep um, of of, uh, of uh, yeah impaired uh, uh, well impaired respiratory control and in the COPD folks it actually kind of seemed to go the other way instead of loop gain kind of going down their loop gain tended to get a little higher it would seem in this study so you know this is this is really complex neurobiology and uh, you know it needs to be uh, uh, figured out. And, and Dr. Yagi, uh, to the cloud study, your group has done important work looking at the bidirectional relationship uh, between opioids and sleep. And you've, you've talked about this a little bit, but can you tell us more? Sure. Uh, this, uh, this grant uh, is funded under, it's an ongoing study. It was funded under uh, the HEAL uh, initiative uh, at the NIH, and in particular in the NHLBI there was a uh, about a $25 million program funding several studies 
to look at, at sleep dysfunction as sort of a core part of opioid use disorder and, and, uh, and, and recovery. And so our study, CLOUDS, is an acronym for the Collaboration Linking Opioid Use Disorder and Sleep. And it's a, it's a large observational cohort study uh, of patients who uh, have been recently stabilized on medication for opioid use disorder through, uh, through clinics in the, in the New Haven area. Um, and we do at baseline some very detailed uh, assessments of their sleep. So uh, poly, full polysomnography uh, and actigraphy. We do uh, are doing functional MRI studies on all these patients too to to look at uh, uh, the, the 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 connectome within the brain and, and in hopes of generating a, a sort of neural fingerprint of sleep deficiency uh, and how that might predict recurrent opioid use, um, as well as a battery of sort of neuropsychiatric tests and social ecologic uh, uh, questionnaires. But the, 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 the idea is to understand whether various measures of sleep deficiency um, actually predict uh, recurrent illicit uh, uh, opioid use disorder. And we follow these patients uh, out six months with weekly urine testing and are, are looking at the, the primary outcome is the percent of days with um, uh, recurrent uh, op opioid use. And so we're very excited. We're about three quarters of the way through the study and, and are, are looking forward to sort of analyzing some of that data and shedding some light on some of these mechanisms. The last, last point I just wanted to highlight uh, in and I think this is some of uh, uh, some of what Danny also included in this in, in the review article. That in addition to sort of the orexin system as a therapeutic modality, there's been some really interesting work uh, on some new potential therapeutic opportunities. Um, Seva Polotsky's done some work looking at intranasal uh, leptin and uh, a, a mole some molecules called ampokines that might help to attenuate some of the control of breathing effects that occur with opioid use disorder. So even you know outside of sleep, even with sleep disordered breathing, beyond PAP therapies that we use to treat these patients, there are some potential novel pharmacologic approaches that are arising as well. That's really exciting. Thank you. Uh, next up, we have uh, Dr. Konzerska. Um, Dr. Konzerska, I wanted to ask you, so what is known about the epidemiology of chronic opioid use and opioid-induced respiratory depression in, in North America? Actually, this is a great question, and not that I have accurate answer. <laughs> so, and uh, as an epidemiologist, I just realized that, like, with our projects, I realized that it's very difficult to do those epidemiological studies on opioids and sleep disorder and breathing and respiratory effect of opioids, because not that we can identify nature or severity of sleep disorder and breathing from health administrative data. We can derive information on opioid prescriptions, on opioid characteristics, on day supplies, but we don't know anything, almost anything about sleep disorder and breathing, and we cannot identify respiratory effect. And uh, what I have found so far, even based on, you know, like using those relatively old meta-analysis, it has been shown that the incidence of opioid-induced respiratory depression may be less than 1%, but it really depends on the opioid characteristics, population of interest, and importantly, on definitions. 
So even in those studies and those studies limited by small sample size usually. So they're using different definitions for respiratory effect and usually it's based on observed changes in breathing frequencies and oxygen desaturations. And even for oxygen desaturations, they have multiple definitions. And in, in some way, um, Dr. Yagi already covered epidemiology and of opioids and just talking about current opioid epidemic. But um, I would say that current opioid epidemic is not driven by prescribed opioids anymore. So at least what we do know is that, this, like, that in general population, again, we don't have, and I agree with Dan, is that we have a huge knowledge gap to learn more. And so, but we can see in general population reduction in opioid prescriptions. But from my point of view, we still in some populations, for example, in individuals with chronic pain, in individuals with COPD, we have this increase in prescription in long-term opioids, like long-term and um, long-acting opioids, and as well as a high dosage of, of opioid prescription. So this is what I have learned so far. <laughs> Numbers still pretty threatening. So we're talking about millions. And so, but we have this huge knowledge gap in epidemiology and hopefully with more prospective observational studies. And it's really exciting to hear about the observational studies so we can learn more. Thank you. Yeah, at least anecdotally, in, in the ICU last week in our county hospital, I, I saw, I think, five street-related fentanyl overdoses alone. So it's, uh, it's pretty shocking. Um, can you tell us about your work uh, examining opioid use, OSA, and patient outcomes? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, sure. So we have uh, published several studies. And first, we started uh, with a systematic review. And in this systematic review, we looked on this relationship between opioid prescription, opioid dosage, and specifically obstructive sleep apnea, as measured by apnea, hypopnea index, and oxygen desaturations. And this is just to follow up on the discussion with Danny about the effect of opioid use on AHI. So in that systematic review and meta-analysis, we did not find significant relationship. So really, we included 15 studies. Maybe it's relatively outdated systematic review, but still, we did not find any relationship. But to say that most of those studies were limited by sample size and in general, it was low quality of evidence. So we need more, more research in this direction. So, and then uh, we utilized, um, as in our first like observational study, we utilized health administrative data just to learn more what is going on in the population referred for a sleep disorder assessment. So we just, in this population, we tried to understand the rate of opioid prescription, long-acting opioids, combination of opioids and benzodiazepines, and also we uh, try to assess this relationship between dosage opioid characteristics and positive airway pressure treatment prescription. And uh, what we found is that we found actually a higher rate of opioid prescription, as well as prescription of long-acting opioids, as well as prescription of benzodiazepines. And actually 38% of people on opioids were on benzodiazepines at the same time which was pretty threatening number. 
so, and importantly, we found that among those like active opioid users on opioids during diagnostic sleep studies, those on long-acting opioids and those on high opioid daily dosages, they were less likely to initiate positive airway pressure therapy. So, but again, as I mentioned, with any epidemiological studies, we had no information about obstructive sleep apnea, severity, nature, so even a reason for referral, but just assume that those people refer to the sleep disorder assessment who underwent sleep studies, they should have some symptoms. So, you know, to initiate this referral uh, process. And in the next uh, manuscript, uh, we just decided to understand if that combined presence of opioid use and obstructive sleep apnea increases the risk of adverse health consequences. And as a long-term consequences, we looked on mortality, all-course mortality, hospitalizations, emergency department visits, and also emergency department visits and hospitalizations related to motor vehicle accidents. And so, and in this study, we um, defined um, obstructive sleep apnea using validated definition. So we previously validated definition against clinical data, but again, it's really a propensity, probability of having moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea with certain sensitivity and specificity. So without detailed information about AHI central and obstructive component. And um, uh, what we found that actually those individuals on opioids, regardless of obstructive sleep apnea status, they were at higher hazard of developing all these outcomes. And uh, when we looked on this potential synergetic effect between being on opioids and having sleep apnea, we found potential synergetic effect uh, for motor vehicle accidents related hospitalizations and emergency department mm -hmm. visits. Yeah, so which was pretty interesting and all cause hospitalizations. It was not statistically significant, but we were relatively limited by sample size in terms of motor vehicle accidents. And so, and the final study, but it's currently under review. So we are just trying to understand, you know, we, have, we are having this discussion, trying to understand harm and benefits of opioid prescriptions. And based on um, published studies, it's possible that some patients can benefit from opioids if prescribed safely. And also not that we can stop opioids in all individuals. So we're just trying to understand what opioid characteristics, dosages, type of opioids, duration of prescription can affect those adverse outcomes that we're looking. And I'm just doing a little bit like different type of studies, really looking on prescribed opioids and non-opioid related outcomes, because we still know that so opioids can be associated with those non-opioid related outcomes. We do know in, in different populations, including populations with COPD, which Danny just mentioned. Yeah, so this is so far, this is what we're doing. That being said, and you sort of got into this already, but what public health questions remain regarding opioid use and sleep disorder breathing? I would say all of them. <laughs> so we're still trying to understand who can benefit and who are those people at risk. 
because we do we do know that with sleep disorder and breathing, we're trying to treat those people. We do know that sometimes a PAP bilevel therapy is we can we can be of benefit as compared to CPAP. The question is, should we treat? Should we just reduce the dosage of opioids, potentially change the opioid? So this is what we need to understand. So I would say we're really at the beginning. So <laughs> we need to learn more and we need to raise those public uh, like health public questions. So. Great. Thank you. And, and um, so, so next up, we'll, we'll shift gears and go to Dr. Levitt. Um, so Dr. Levitt, a lot of these questions are focused on the sort of neuroscience of opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, and obviously, you know, famously, Jack Feldman's talked about quantal slowing and bristlet suppression, and uh, Rich Horner and Montandon did sort of the microdialysis into the pre-Watsinger complex to show that it was really important for mediating opioid-induced respiratory depression. Um, you focus a lot on the colic effuse. Can you tell us about the colic effuse and why impairments in its function are likely very important in opioid-induced respiratory depression? Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks, Brandon. So to start off with some background and history on the KF, or the colic effuse. Uh, so the KF is located in the dorsolateral pons, separated some distance from the pre-Botzinger complex, which is in the medulla. Um, it's been known since Lumsden in 1923 that the KF is an essential component of the control of breathing circuits. Uh, ablation of the KF leads to slowed or apneustic breathing, depending on whether the vagus nerve is intact or not. Um, and in addition to contributions to breathing rate, the KF is very important for initiating the post-inspiratory phase of breathing, um, which is the phase during which other upper airway behaviors occur, um, behaviors such as speech and swallowing. So the KF is essential and has multiple roles in control of breathing, um, like coordinating upper airway behaviors and breathing as well as breathing rate. So what we have found um, is that direct application of opioids into the KF will lead to loss of that post-inspiratory phase of breathing and apneustic breathing if in a preparation where the vagus nerve is cut. Um, and in respect to breathing rates, opioids in the KF lead to slowed and shallow breathing uh, and deletion of opioid receptors from KF neurons specifically attenuates morphine-induced suppression of breathing rate. So clearly there are effects of opioids outside of the pre-Butzinger complex. And um, you know, the studies that we're going into next wanted to explore possible mechanisms by which KF neurons could lead to opioid-induced respiratory depression. Our hypothesis is that at least one mechanism is that opioids are inhibiting excitatory projections from the KF to these medullary centers, like the pre-Butzinger complex. Great. And that also sort of gets into the next question. So your, your R1 is focused on the, the neural mechanisms of opioid-induced respiratory depression. So what things have you uncovered so far that you're willing to share? So first off, we found that opioids directly inhibit KF neurons that project to the pre-Butzinger complex, as well as to the respiratory, um, the rostral ventral respiratory group, so the RVRG, so the premotor, inspiratory premotor neurons. And a surprising high percentage of these neurons that receive that KF input were themselves also inhibited by opioids. It's a surprisingly high percentage because only a very small percentage of the neurons in the pre-Botzinger complex actually express opioid receptors. So it seems like there's perhaps this opioid-specific um, connection. There's specific connection maybe between these opioid receptor-containing 
uh, populations of neurons in the pons and the medulla. Uh, so in addition to that connection, that glutamate release from, or the excitatory release from the KF neurons themselves were also inhibited by presynaptic opioid receptors. Uh, so opioids can inhibit this specific excitatory pathway from the KF to the prebutzinger complex and the RBRG in at least three different ways, involving both presynaptic and postsynaptic mechanisms. Um, we were also interested in understanding the respiratory phenotype of the KF neurons that were sensitive to opioids. Um, so the KF contains neurons that fire during inspiration and expiration, as well as different phases within those two um, groups. And we found that when using the uh, arterially perfused in situ preparation, which has an intact brainstem and output to the respiratory motor nerves, we found that the inspiratory neurons in the dorsolateral pons were silenced uh, when we perfused fentanyl to the preparation um, and caused apnea, whereas the expiratory neurons were not. So it seems like those inspiratory pontine neurons are the ones being inhibited by opioids, um, which is fits with this in excitatory inspiratory pathway being highly opioid sensitive. That, that's really cool. Thank you. Yeah, I, I'm really, really excited to see what comes next. And, and that being said, so what questions remain unanswered about the neural basis of opioid-induced respiratory depression? Yeah, so first of all, we don't really know how much this newly identified um, opioid-sensitive circuit contributes to opioid-induced respiratory depression in vivo. We know that the KF neurons contribute, but we don't know if it's this specific, specific circuit or the specific synapse. Um, beyond that, there is much to be explored related to the other brain areas uh, that can um, control breathing and express opioids, uh, opioid receptors. Um, so especially relevant for this audience, what are the brainstem mechanisms leading to the impaired upper airway function? Um, the KF could be one of them because of its role in post-inspiration, um, but there are others. Uh, for instance, the nucleus ambiguous is full of opioid receptors. So it's a lot of potential um, directions to go there. Um, we're in, in addition to that, I'm interested in how opioids influence other neuromodulatory systems that support breathing. Um, for instance, the adrenergic and the serotonergic systems have strong influences on breathing. And there's much to explore on how opioids can impact those systems and how those systems interact with the breathing circuits. And then from uh, um, basic science perspective, where are the endogenous opioids coming? Why are these receptors here? Uh, there's a lot to know about the endogenous opioid peptides and, and how and why somewhat they're affecting the breathing control circuits. And th thank you so much. Yeah, this is all really exciting to sort of dive into. Um, shifting gears again, we got Dr. Ora coming up. So Dr. Orr, your, your work is focused on the relationship that CPAP might play in influencing sleep disordered breathing and opioid use. Uh, what can you tell us, tell us about this work so far? Yeah, so um, I think one of the big questions in this space about opioids and sleep apnea is you know, the impact of sleep apnea amongst these patients. I mean, uh, we all see the issues as far as breathing. We see obstructive apneas, we see central apneas, we see hypoventilation. Um, and, you know, we, we, we all sort of think that we should be treating, treating those disorders, maybe extrapolating from our experience with 
with other patients. But I think there are some um, things to be considered in this population in particular. And I think, you know, Dr. Yagi and, and Dr. Eckert really nailed it when they talk about this uh, bi-directional relationship, you know, this, this potential bi-directional relationship that's unique to this patient population. So this idea that, you know, opioids might contribute to sleep apnea or otherwise make sleep apnea sort of more complex, but then that if you have sleep apnea, that it might be important for those patients because it might worsen how they feel. And in particular, there's this concern that, you know, it could contribute to things like ongoing pain. And so if you had more issues with pain, you might be more likely to, you know, continue using opioids or maybe, maybe even escalate your use of opioids or, or turn to other substances. And so I think, you know, that's why we need some specific studies of treatment in this group. And we don't just want to say, well, sleep apnea should be treated. We really want to understand, you know, what the effects are of treatment in this patient population. The other thing, of course, is that, um, you know, sleep disordered breathing amongst these patients is pretty heterogeneous. And, you know, you can see obstructive sleep apnea, you can see central apnea, et cetera. And, um, and some of that is probably driven, you know, by opioids and the dose and things like that uh, might be driven by other factors. Uh, but we don't really know exactly how to approach treatment in this, in this patient group. And I think, you know, you can make a good case for sort of starting with a CPAP. You know, we could talk about adaptive serve ventilation, we could talk about BiPAP, we could talk about novel drugs, but the, the simplest thing is treating CPAP, which has a good track record uh, in terms of tolerance. Maybe it doesn't get rid of all the central apneas, but maybe it helps to stabilize the upper airway, stabilize breathing. And so it might be a good uh, just first line approach. And so that's what we're doing. Um, we have a, a study that's funded by the NIH to uh, look at relatively short-term, uh, eight-week CPAP treatment in a parallel group, uh, RCT. And our primary outcome is looking at sleep symptoms, but our secondary outcome is about pain. And so, again, we're really interested in just trying to understand whether if we try to treat sleep apnea in these patients, is it going to help them for the things that really matter for, for this patient group? And number two, um, you know, how well does it work? And so we might be able to do some analysis to look at you know, some people's sleep apnea might not be completely resolved with CPAP. Does that matter in terms of how they feel? And, uh, and can we predict who might need a treatment other than CPAP? Great. And, and for those who are, you know, using opioids and have opioid-induced respiratory depression, what do you think the best therapeutic options are available for them? I think that it's going to be one of these... Um, situations where we're probably going to want to individualize, but we're, we're a ways off, I would say, from that. And um, again, just to, I think, reiterate, um, anybody that you know, sees patients with sleep apnea that use opioids knows that there's a huge spectrum of, of, of breathing disturbances out there. You've got people with obstructive sleep apnea who act just like regular obstructive sleep apnea. You've got people with OSA that might be complicated by treatment emergent you know, apneas on CPAP. You've got people with some central apneas and some periodic breathing type thing. You've got people with really ataxic, irregular breathing. You've got people with hypoventilation, even sometimes in the absence of a whole lot of discrete respiratory events. And so our approaches are probably going to need to differ, um, you know, based on the underlying physiology. And I think it's going to help to, you know, better understand what's driving those different endotypes of sleep apnea. Um, and, uh, you know, allow us to develop therapies targeted to the, the cause. Um, 
And then also, again, I think better characterizing these things. So, you know, Danny and others have done a lot of great work, um, you know, looking at these sleep apnea traits and, and techniques to sort of do these analyses without having to, you know, spend your whole night in the lab, you know, messing with people's airways and things like that. But if we can, you know, better characterize, you know, someone's loop gain, if we can better characterize, you know, the amount of ataxia that they have, I think that's going to be helpful. And I just wanted to mention about the, the ataxia thing and, and this idea of the cheeky bunky. Um, I think that's a great, you know, way to put it. And, and um, you know, really it's kind of about this, you've got this complex system. I mean, you look at breathing, it's incredibly regular in a normal person, right? You look at somebody breathing while they're asleep and, and it's just, you know, very regular. And you might think, well, the system is a very simple system. It's just, it just goes on and on. But re the reality is to keep that stable, there's a lot of stuff going on in the background. There's a lot of neurobiology happening. And so opioids, you know, start to, um, you know, affect that system and start to take the system apart, you know, little by little. And you have this loss of uh, control and that's manifested by this, what looks like this very complex signal. But the reality is the signal is complex because the system has lost this homeostatic, you know, mechanism. So I think some techniques to try to characterize that, and we're working on some of these techniques and borrowing from things like information theory to try to characterize those systems and how, uh, how disorganized they really are. Really great, thank you. And, and are there any other unaddressed questions regarding opioids and, and uh, OSA that you think need to be brought up? Well, there are a lot. I mean, I think um, I'm very interested in non-CPAP therapies. So again, I think, you know, that can include things like adaptive seroventilation, other pharmacotherapy. Um, I think that the genetics aspect of this is quite interesting and, uh, you know, maybe something that in the future help us to understand what's happening with an individual patient. For example, I know that Danny has done some work looking at OPRM1, which is the mu opioid receptor gene, and it turns out people with different polymorphisms there have different sensitivities to opioids. But we know that respiratory uh, control and the respiratory control system has strong genetic influences um, that vary across patients and, and underlying ethnicities and genetic background. So I think helping to tease those things apart um, is gonna actually give us a lot of insight into what's going on and then hopefully actually give us some, um, some clinical insights as well. Great, thank you. And, and and thank everyone. I mean, this has really been a sort of um, a broad uh, level of interest in the in the podcast here, and I, I I think we covered a lot of ground. If I were to try to summarize some of the key points, it'd be that you know opioid use is uh, prevalent, and that opioid induced respiratory depression and and sleep impact is also prevalent, uh, although we don't know exactly how prevalent. The impact of opioids on, on sleep is likely a bi-directional relationship and uh, needs to be explored further. Opioids are likely to impact adverse health outcomes irrespective of the presence of sleep-disordered breathing, uh, although that may also be a modulator in patient outcomes. The neurobiology of, of opioid-induced respiratory depression is complex, involves a lot of different centers, including pre-botching a complex, the colic effuse, as well as other systems, including the erection system that we brought up earlier. The impact on OSA on endotypes is varied and likely individualized related to individual genetics and uh, pharmacodynamics. 
and uh, th there are still a lot of unanswered questions regarding what the best sort of therapeutics are once individuals develop uh, opioid-induced respiratory depression, but a, a tailored approach uh, is likely the best one. Great. Well, uh, yeah, thank you, everyone, again. I, I really enjoyed this, and I appreciate you all taking the time to, to share your expertise and insights here. Thank you, Brandon. Yeah, thanks, Brandon. Thank, thank you, Brandon. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Nice. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.